Welcome to One of Two Hundred, the international and domestic independent politics podcast. I am your host, Kyle Church, and today I'm sitting down with Ed Miller, researcher and policy analyst for First Union. Welcome to the podcast, Ed. Uh, kia ora, Kyle. Thanks for having me back. Must not have said anything sufficiently insulting last time. <laughs> You know, people get away with a lot, um, and we have thick skins, so you'll have That's to up good. your game. We have to up your game, um, and it will have to be in such a way that I don't want to edit it out, uh, so just keep that in mind. There's been a lot happening in the media, uh, which has been really great to see, uh, about workers' rights uh, over the last, well, three or four months, really. Uh, since the year kicked off, we've had a number of changes to... Um, workers' rights policy and, and labour policy, I guess you'd say more broadly. And it's being covered pretty well uh, across uh, multiple uh, media sites. And I, I don't think it's something I've really experienced say, for, for a while, um, maybe since uh, Helen Clark uh, was the Prime Minister. Yeah, I mean, I think it's even more pronounced than that. Uh, workers are tired. Uh, workers have had a it's been a long 700 years, the, this pandemic period, uh, 700,000 years, and, and that was in two years as well. So I think people have felt that um, and they're feeling it more because of the effects of, uh, the effects of high level inflation, the highest inflation that we've had in 30 years. So workers see less benefit from their wages and are not thrilled about that. Um, and I think it's, it's pretty across the board as well. Like if, um, you you, talk, you frame this in, in terms of media and I think media coverage of people working in the media or people working in the media industry are probably feeling the same effects of inflation as people that are in the working class right now. It's quite a broad impact. So I, I'm not surprised that it's covered. But these stories were already simmering away for a long time and it's nice that they're sort of entering mainstream discussion a bit more. Um, but I think that's also because there's some mainstream policy responses coming through. Yeah, and... You know, you're, you're talking about the pandemic and the kind of increasing pressure uh, that workers have been under. Um, lots of specific examples of that, such as frontline workers, um, you know, working in the supermarkets or in healthcare, um, who are having to put up with just worse and worse conditions uh, for little uh, payout, essentially. Um, mm. And who, in many cases, don't really have much choice except to continue going to work. Uh, and alongside those those rising prices, it's it's becoming untenable. Yeah, I think you know it's been felt very directly because um, because of the fact that people have been had to isolate from most workplaces. So you have like big gaps in your, every sort of workplace's work process or their production process, and being able to um, it takes a lot of legwork to be able to work around all that. And and when that's on top of an already exhausting kind of workload being in um, the country with, you know, the longest hours worked in the OECD, that gets, like, that's a front-end impact that workers experience. Um, and then, as you say, like, combined with that cost of living impact, you know, people are paying a dollar more for petrol now than they were 12 months ago, even within that pandemic period. Um, and it's the same when you go to the supermarket, people, we have the highest food price um, and on record, but we also, like, 
historically globally now have the highest food price on, on record. The UNFAO Global Food Price Index has hit its highest point ever, higher than during the periods of food food riots that we had in 2007-8, um, Food's more expensive than that now. And so that's come through. Yeah. It's, it's almost worse than the 08 recession in some respects, right? Except we're seeing... Oh, it's way worse. It's way worse. Yeah. Less... Um, <laughs> focus on like financial markets and, and, and banks um, as being either the instigators or the people taking the hit um, as it was often, uh, it was often framed uh, previously, you know, it, it was a time that ushered in austerity politics. Uh, and people think back to that and go, wow, that was a really horrible time. Uh, and as you say, the numbers show it's a lot worse now uh, than it was 14 years ago. Yeah, I mean, in, in just the past two years, house prices went up 60%. Uh, that's <laughs> like almost, almost doubled in the space of two years. It's just absolute madness. Um, and people's capacity to get into those houses took a hit. And all, all this kind of thing, plus the, the impact on public services, being able to access public services, vulnerable communities, and, and all that kind of thing, plus just the fact that it's really, really hard to leave the house. <laughs> There's so many steps involved in just leaving the house. Yeah, and it just, it all builds up. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, global indexes are, are showing similar um, issues. And in the same way, we're seeing workers' rights movements having a moment globally as well. Um, and we've talked about on the cast um, in the last few weeks about uh, strikes through the United States um, in particular, or, you know, the, the imperial home of capital in, in many respects, having some of the, the biggest strikes and for the biggest companies in the world. Uh, and we haven't seen much coverage of that here. Um, and nor have we seen much coverage of some of the strike actions that's been happening in New Zealand. Mm, I mean, there was a pretty big strike at the Countdown Distribution Centre at the end of last year. Around about 800 workers went on strike, managed to get 5% um, plus increases over a couple of increases within a less than two-year period. Um, that got pretty good coverage, but um, it wasn't the kind of numbers that you see in the United States because of the economies of scale and that kind of thing. Um, I guess the the interesting thing that's happening here and, and bargaining from where I'm sitting is that workers are getting really high or organized labor is getting good outcomes, good um, financial outcomes for workers without having to take strike action. Um, and part of that is kind of built into where the labor market is at right now because employers recognize that with such a tight labor market, they're going to have to pay for skills and going to have to retain staff because if they don't, then the, another employer will take those staff. You know, the... the Reserve Bank of New Zealand has said that now the unemployment rate is at the maximum sustainable level. We have maximum sustainable unemployment. So what the Reserve Bank is trying to say is that like, there's too many people that have jobs now. They don't like that. No, because it gives workers leverage, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, now it's down to like 93,000 people that are considered unemployed, according to how that's defined, which is like, there's a couple of definitions there. I don't really want to get too far into that. But um, yeah, you're right. Workers have leverage because they're not replaceable anymore. And we haven't had that situation for um, quite a long time. Um, and it's really, really cool to see. And, and I think we're really thinking that it would be great if workers... Uh, that are in a union or that are on a unionized worksite took that power into their own hands and tried to turn back some of the um, 
like sustained decades worth of almost generations worth of now inequality that, that we've had since the New Zealand sort of took its neoliberal turn and we had the, the policies of, of fiscal austerity, as you talk about in privatisation, which stole a lot of workers' social wealth and a lot of workers' ability to generate income from work. Um, taking that power back right now, using that tight labour market is really, really cool to see and hopefully something that, that unions and, and people who are not yet in unions um, could take into <laughs> things that they're, they're trying to do because now's the time to do it. We never had a, a better labour market. Yeah, and and I think there are a variety of reasons for that, right? Um, the inability to get, uh, I guess you'd say, more exploitable labour um, from overseas um, in our agricultural and tourism sectors uh, who appear to have relied on that very heavily to drive down their own labour costs um, mm. is definitely I mean, a factor in that. Interesting is that the tourism sector has pretty much got, <laughs> died over the past two years. Um, but you're totally right, like the, the agriculture sector hasn't had the same access to labour, the horticulture sector hasn't had the same access to labour, and they're really feeling labour pressures right now, because even in, in rural regions, you have really low unemployment, which doesn't happen all the time. Um, yeah, and there's, there's, there's battles amongst employers now to try and get hold of staff. Yeah, we can't pay $24. We can, pay <laughs> we can pay $26, you know, it's like, and, and well, a, a dollar an hour, I'd change employer for a dollar an hour when it's the difference between being eating bread again for dinner or like having some two-minute noodles, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's like an interesting, uh, alongside everything else, I mean, it's a fantastic position to be in, um, but it's interesting to see those mechanisms at play uh, in the same, I guess, in the counter manner uh, to the, low wage spiral where you know businesses would try and undercut each other to drive down their costs and then potentially or, or the um the myth goes to then drive down prices for the consumer as well yeah yeah i mean it's interesting seeing <laughs> labor markets are still supply and demand markets at the end of the day and like there's a whole lot of problems with that but um, the worst thing that employers can't stand to see is when those labour markets actually work the way that they're designed to work and that scarcity drives up the cost of labour. Um, we saw it throughout this week, just yeah, maybe it was yesterday, Business NZ released a report that was written by Sense Partners, Shamabil Jacobs firm or the firm that he works for. Um, and, and within the opening paragraph, it said that unemployment is too low and they needed to do something about it. And one of the responses that was put forward in there um, was what you just mentioned, the being able to enable more migration, in, whether that's low labour cost migration or higher higher cost migration. Moving into um, some of the policy stuff. Uh, so we're, having set the context for, for where we are um, with the New Zealand labour market, you know, global trends um, alongside that um, and some of the leverage that, that workers have at the moment, we've also seen... Uh, uh, some of the, I'd, I'd call them key policies of this Labour government and its, its quest to be transformative, uh, have started to kick into gear uh, this year as well. Um, and it's interesting that you should mention, you know, we, the, the theft of workers, um, just wealth in general, I, I guess, uh, since the uh, uh, 80s. Um, and one of the lines I'm hearing again and again from employees associations and business New Zealand types is that the fair pay um, agreement 
policy is going to take us back to the 70s um, as if this is like <laughs> this horrible thing um, and, mm. and let's not get into like the way in which uh, conservatives and business types often hark back to oh I wish we could return to the good old days because um, apparently they want to return to everything except to a time when workers had more more ability to demand things of their employers yeah I mean uh, there's things about the 1970s that I wouldn't want to go back to, right? Like I don't want the dawn raids to come back all of a sudden. Um, but um, the dawn raids were itself a, a response to changing economic conditions and, and Pacific people were victimised through that process. Um, I don't think that's what Business New Zealand is talking about, though. Yeah, well, the dawn raids was, was a response to the same kind of thing that we're talking about here, is that the cost of labour had become too high. Capital was upset that they couldn't... Uh, we. This country couldn't attract investments because the cost of labor was too high. Labor was too well organized. And labor at that point had the ability to actually kind of put some constraints on capital's ability to work. I think that's what um, the right's really concerned about when they say going back to the 70s, that the, the labor share of income was too high. Capital wasn't able to sequester the same degree as wealth as it as it were right now. Like if I were to say it real simply, rich people weren't able to get rich enough from putting money in because that's what they do. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting you should say that because we know uh, over the pandemic especially that the rich have got exponentially richer. Uh, you know, there's some of the highest um, growth in, in profits for, for capital, um, for business, uh, for corporate uh, organisations um, ever. Um, and for the very, very richest, uh, so the world's billionaires, uh, their wealth has just gone through the fucking roof. Yeah, um, well, I can tell you a little bit about what's happened to wealth shares in this country over the last couple of years, because we have some pretty good data that just came out on that recently. Um, the wealth of the top 5% went down 2% in this country. Oh, that's good wealth- though, right? Well, it's okay. Listen to the next bit, though. And this is only till 2021. The, the, the wealth of the next 45% went up 2%. So what happened is that um, some of the money that the super wealthy had kind of transferred over to the next level of wealthy people. But actually what happened is just the wealth of those people who own property increased. And the, the wealth of those people who own businesses were, was a bit flatter when it increased, which means that... Um, property increased faster than uh, equity, than shares increased. That's kind of what happened up to 2021. Um, But then after that, we know based on the treasury tax, corporate tax statements, that 2021 was likely the the most profitable year on record for New Zealand businesses, over $100 million in profit. Um, And that's basically what it takes to run a government in in this country. Like the last government, I think the last budget was about $107 billion. Um, and that's what they, <laughs> that's what is generated in profit now by New Zealand businesses. So, I, I mean, there's, there's a huge amount of money that's not going into working people's pockets. I think the, the other statistic connected to that sort of wealth share thing that, that puts it all in perspective is the, bo- the bottom 50% of the country own 2% of the wealth at the moment. The bottom 50% of people in Aotearoa, if the top 1% took half of their wealth and gave it to the bottom 50%, then they'd like, each individual would increase their wealth by five times. <laughs> it's absurd how much much money the, the richest people in, in this country have. Um, so, you know, I, I guess like it's 
four and a half years coming, but it's really good to say Labour have finally said that industry bargaining is coming on the table. Because we know that like the huge numbers of workers in this country whose industries have been deregulated over the past 30 years have lost the ability to bargain for any of the proceeds of, of the benefits of their labour. It has all been taken, well, not all of it, you know, people still need to be able to afford shoes and sandwiches to get- Well, we need to be able to afford to pay their landlords. Keep that in mind. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in, in the year to March 2021, the- um, the, the wealth generated by housing was like $484 billion. That's like, insane. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the country increased in, in wealth by like 16% within one year just because these houses were worth a whole lot more, which means that you and I could no longer buy them. Great. But uh, <laughs> back to fair pay agreements, I guess. Um, yeah, I think it's really shit hot that the... Labour government have finally decided that New Zealand needs um, industry bargaining to lift productivity in this country, to make sure that workers who are paid fuck all and structurally destroyed industries by the ghouls of neoliberalism who came in and, and leveraged buyouted, bought, bought out, how do you put that in the past tense? Leveraged buyouted the economy <laughs> um, and debt funded the destruction of decent work um, and then took the proceeds and fucked off. That, that, there's, there's some bounce back from that possibly that we, we could make sure that workers had a little bit more to be able to pay for that and although there's a lot of i mean obviously there's going to be a lot of scaremongering about this and we've seen um over the last three or four weeks uh as fair pay agreements have approached parliament um you know any number of business representatives and um other neoliberal standard bearers uh, have have come up to try and do that, but these kind of agreements, uh, in many other countries, working as intended. Yeah, well, and and they worked here as intended as well. Um, I think we will get a lighter version of what they have in other countries. I don't think we're going to get um, the same like award kind of system that they have in Australia. Even though we will have awards, I don't think they'll cover the whole economy, or it doesn't look like that at this stage. Um, but I think it's a huge opportunity to try and stem some of the inequality that has become so characteristic of our workforce and, you know, the, the long-term kind of issues around that. Um, I think it'll pose a whole lot of questions for government as well, uh, because a lot of the worst jobs that will be that will have the best improvement from uh, fair pay agreements are kind of like effectively the public sector, which have been kind of farmed out to private sector through various well, means, whether it's privatization or deregulation or contracting out or all that kind of thing. Which is one of the major goals of neoliberalism, right, is to farm out these public services uh, into private hands so it can be, you know, uh, everything can be devolved to individual um, responsibility. Yeah, that's right. And then, and then the the norms of competition are put, put above that, like privatization is justified provided we have effective competition operating within a marketplace. Um, and that's how you get uh, countdown and foodstuffs controlling the, the food industry. And that's how you get uh, four banks controlling the banking industry to building materials market companies controlling the building materials industry, uh, telecommunications, 
oil, so on and so forth. Like that is the structure of New Zealand capitalism. Privatisation has failed to reach competitive marketplaces. And the only way that they have created competitive marketplaces have been competitive marketplaces for labour, effectively driven down labour costs throughout, particularly where labour is the main component of the delivery of a service or good. And there's basically nowhere else in the world that operates in this way. Well, I mean, there are are definitely other (coughs) countries. Um, There's... There are, I think you can say that the most uh, economically advanced countries within the OECD have industry bargaining. The sort of the Nordic countries, Australia, Germany have industry bargaining, but the United States doesn't have. Oh, no, I mean, in terms of um, the the full consolidation um, behind a very small number um, of of industry players alongside uh, this deregulation of the labour market. to, yeah. to, give a, to give a very few employers a lot of power. Yeah, I mean, New Zealand remains a relatively small market for most delivery of most goods and services, and therefore it would be pretty hard to not end up with droplets in a lot of those markets. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a dumb setup anyway. Let's... Yeah, and it's, <laughs> and it's come, it's, it's, you know, it's delivered us all these problems. Um, and so the, the Fair Pay Agreements um, bill has had its first reading uh, in Parliament now. Um, we've started to have this uh, public relations pushback uh, on it. Are you able to go into a little bit of detail for our listeners about what the fair payment agreements are actually looking to do? Yeah, so in New Zealand, you can either have an individual employment agreement or you can have a collective employment agreement. An individual employment agreement is when you and your boss negotiate an agreement, which means that your boss gives you an agreement. And that's the conditions of your work. If you have a collective agreement, it means most likely that um, you're a member of a union. The union has negotiated a fair increase based on the number of members that are there and all that kind of thing. And you will almost inevitably end up with a better wage. An industry agreement is basically when you have that across the whole industry. So the unions that exist within that industry and the business associations that exist within that industry sit down and negotiate some sort of minimum standards that cut across a a number of areas like basic wages, basic hours of work, maybe some health and safety stuff, a few other things, depends what the industry is. Um, And you have a sort of an industry-wide negotiation. The idea being that you don't have... um, what they call a race to the bottom, right? Where where all every, all wages sort of spiral downwards because the lo- the cost of labour becomes the main point of competition for engagement. It it was never hoped that competitive markets would have that race to the bottom, except by people who own businesses. And Not this all is, of them, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good capitalists, right? Um, but this is something that we've seen happening even as like recently as the last couple of years with uh, bus driver. Uh, wages, right, um, and culminated in like this this bus driver lockout uh, in Wellington, um, where you had, uh, I guess they were like, what, what do you call them, asset stripping companies, uh, just like being uncharitable. Firms. The, the bus industry has like been continually cited as the case study of why we need um, fair pay agreements. The bus industry in this country used to be publicly owned. Um, and it used to have relatively high wages. In 1990, pretty much it was deregulated with a series of pieces of legislation. Between then and now, um, the, the, the industry wage of bus drivers has fallen probably in today's money around about 12 or 
what I mean by that is that at the time uh, when the bus industry was deregulated, the, the bus driver wage that was in the award, so the national wage, you can be paid below this, was about 66% higher than what the minimum wage was, right? So that would mean that today a bus driver would get a, like a minimum of about $34 an hour. The average bus driver wage in Auckland City at the end of last year anyway was $23, was slightly over $23. So there's $11 difference in there. And that's kind of where the bus industry should be, but it's a competitive tendering organization, right? Uh, sorry, it's a competitive tendering industry. So it means you have companies that compete against each other to drive down, like the lowest cost bids the tender. They're, tender, they're, they're bidding for state work the lowest cost, you know, the, a state, the state as a buyer is like, yeah, I want the lowest cost because I'm using taxpayer money here. I need to get the, the, the best return on, on my investment. Well, we're not thinking about the actual return uh, as opposed to just the outgoings, right? For whatever well, reason. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're thinking of like services delivered. You know, they've, they've put themselves as an economically rational consumer because they've outsourced the, the fact that people need to get around the city. It's just, <laughs> but, yeah, incredible. That's what happens, right? The, the biggest cost in delivering a bus service is the cost of bus drivers. In New Zealand, it, the cost uh, of bus drivers or labor basically makes up about 50% of the cost of delivering a bus service. And some of the countries that we were talking about before where they have industry agreements, the cost of delivering, uh, the cost of bus drivers makes up 70% of the cost of delivering a bus service because their wages are a lot higher because they're, they don't have that kind of competitive race to the And I think it's good that that's the case, right? Because it's a service industry. Um, you need people who are running it. Well, absolutely. I mean, and and also, you know, bus drivers get you around a city, but they have to live in a city. A, a bus driver who's on $23 an hour can't afford to pay a mortgage in a $1.3 million uh, house city. I mean, they can barely afford to pay rent in some parts of Auckland. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, if at all. Um, and it's, it's a... That's a useful thing to think about uh, in terms of a tender process as well, because often we're used to thinking about um, kind of construction projects or, or other things like that where stuff goes out to tender. Um, and it's the company organization that can deliver that piece of infrastructure to minimum specs, like within the, the brief um, for yeah. the cheapest cost. But for something like a service industry, there's only really one thing that they can, they can drive down because they're going to need buses. You know, like they, they can't really um, cut costs too much in that space because if their buses break, they no longer have a service. Uh, but where they can easily start to cut money is with their employees. Yeah, I mean, and unless you value, for example, in school bus routes, unless you value the lives of children. If, if you do that, then you wouldn't want to have an underpaid driver. You wouldn't want to have a fatigue driver. You wouldn't have, want to have a driver who has to have a five-hour gap in the middle of his day because it's between the two rush hour periods. You'd want to have a driver who's alert and who's focused and has enough money to buy a good breakfast. And same for healthcare, stuff. right? Same for healthcare, right? And any, any uh, industry that has a service aspect. Yeah, I mean, people... If they have people who are like in people-worthy condition to engage with other people. So, so what you've described in terms of the fair pay agreements is introducing industry standards um, as yeah, opposed minimum, to minimum like, yeah, as opposed to everyone just choosing it within their own business and, and unions having to fight uh, business by business to get these rights for their workers. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the other example that's always pushed around with regards to fair pay agreements, and rightly so, is the supermarket industry, where we have two big players, we were talking about them before, if foodstuffs on one side and Woolworths countdown on the other, <clears throat> foodstuffs owns Pack and Save a New World, they have a franchise model, whereas on uh, Pack and, uh, sorry, Woolworths, you have a single company model. When the union goes to negotiate with Woolworths, we negotiate all our 11,000 members with the boss, right? Um, when we negotiate at a new world or a foodstuff, we negotiate with our seven members at the, the um, Pack and Save in Topo or our 32 members at the uh, new world in Vic Park. You, you can't really build up bargaining power in this situation. And it means that over long periods of time, you have, um, you know, it would be nice that our union could go into every single pack and save in the country and try and organize a union there. But the reality is we don't have the manpower to do that. So if you're not in an area that's well served by union activists or people that can organize sites, then wages in, in your local pack and save will go down over time once they're adjusted for inflation. And if you stretch that out since the beginning of pack and save, then that's, um, that's pretty much minimum wages from, from there to here. So there's a range of... Um industries that it sounds like they'd really benefit from this. Yeah, I mean, I think any industry where you have competitive tendering is probably going to be one that would benefit from that, where the way that contracts are kind of won by firms is that they compete on a brief and they submit. Um, I mean, it depends what the labour process is within that and how highly skilled the workplace is required. But um, in, in all of those industries where you have competitive tendering, then you have a, the, the capacity to really have a, an improvement in, in workers' welfare and workers' wages and workers' health and safety as a result of having minimum standards that cut across all the workforce within, within that labour market. So why have they called it uh, fair pay agreements um, as opposed to Minimum Industry Standards Act or, or Bill? Um, I guess it's because pay has been the thing that they've been kind of angled around. But I, I think also Labour was can, didn't want to go out there and be like industry standards. These are awards. Yeah, yeah we're going to regulate model. everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're not fixing wages. But so the process as it happens is um, unlike in a normal sort of union negotiation, you can't go on strike, um, but you'll have your um, labor representatives with your business representatives and they'll come together and try and bargain an outcome in certain industries. And there is criteria, like it can't just be every industry, um, but I, I think it'll be reasonably widespread um, availability if, if um, unions wanna do that. They negotiate an agreement. Um, there's kind of like a, a couple of stabs you can have at it, but if you, if there's not uh, an agreement reached between the parties, then it will go to an arbitrated settlement. So government will set the outcome. Probably government would err on the side of caution, unless for some reason they didn't, which would be uh, good. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, by and large, it sounds like a, a positive change to our labour markets uh, for workers, probably for employers as well in a lot of respects in, in terms of you know, not having to engage in this competition with um, with venture capital or, or private equity firms for, for tendering. And, and, you know, if we're going to be super charitable, um, you know, some employers would prefer to have uh, staff who are paid enough to function at a, at a bare minimum. Yeah, I mean, I think all employers would, would like that. They wouldn't necessarily all want to pay for that cost. So I, that's the rub, you know, like if, if you have to 
pay for it, then maybe your expectations are different. But I guess also it comes down to the fact that um, businesses in New Zealand haven't had to be high wage businesses for a long time. So maybe some some industries have had to be kind of high wage, but high wage, high productivity, you know, if those things work together, then you really have successful business development. And look at me, I sound like a University of Chicago <laughs> professor. Hey, you know, we're going to have balance on this podcast. Okay. Um, <laughs> so that being the case, um, you know, this is very likely to become law, um, unless Labour just chicken the hell out on it. You know, they've got a majority. It looks like they've been pretty strong on it in the House. They're not really backing down to, to business in, in the way that I'd usually expect them to, uh, despite uh, what feels like a bit of a coordinated campaign ac- across multiple uh, business organisations. What well, have... Yeah, four and a half years into a nine-year term, you know? Now's the time to do it. I mean, yeah, if you're going to, right? Yeah. Uh, we, I mean, when you have a majority, like... yeah. Um, it, do you see this as something that is transformative? Um, it, would this live up to any amount of the hype that that Labour sold themselves on uh, at the last election? Or the election well, before I, that, even? I, 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 Kyle, I really think you'd like hit the nail on the head there. That This is the one thing that they could do, which is transformative, um, or which will allow them to lay some claim to the to the transformative tag and then they can point to an, a couple of other things around that you know like no no oil and gas to 27 million or <laughs> whatever they can point to some of those things but fair pay agreements will be the centerpiece which they can lean back on and say we did some good and they will, will rightly be able to say that and, and it's not been um something that this group of Labour, this Labour parliamentary representatives alone came up with, you know, it's been a concerted concerted case by uh, the Labour movement for for decades now. Well, since the 80s, right? Yeah, yeah. To try and get this back. To go back to that kind of situation or to adapt a a set of rules for the current kind of how the the global interaction Labour market works that we have right now. I, if they can do this, plus balance it with some stuff around immigration that ensures that um, we don't have, uh, I don't want to sound like too alarmist when I say this kind of thing, but like labor market policy that works for developing wages of all people in this country, including migrants and local workers, you know, rather than having um, migration that enables wage constraints. Yeah. I think that's one of the major, um, it's going to be one of the major immediate impacts uh, once we see a return of a, a migrant workforce is that previously those people were incredibly hard to protect uh, from a, a union point of view um, or even from like a, a ministry point of view, right? Like you, sometimes you don't even know um, that these people exist in the country uh, because of the way that um, yeah. these industries work. If there are minimum standards that's a base minimum level of protection that should uh be given to all workers in the industry um and employees would have to go much more out of their way uh if they were going to engage in some of the practices that you know they historically have yeah and i I think it also encourages like positive knocking between employers you know like right now it's like you you probably don't knock on on 
um, other employers for violations of minimum code stuff because it's like, well, we've got skeletons in our own closet, you know, we just look after ourselves. Whereas it's like, if there's minimum standards, then it's beneficial for you to knock on them because they're doing stuff that brings down the whole labor market and, and wrecks, the, wrecks that labor market. It's like opt-in regulation that actually works. <laughs> yeah. You know, like the Broadcasting well, Standards <laughs> Authority, but uh, money's on the line. Yeah, exactly. Um, so hopefully it, it's beneficial in the migration space as well, you know, that it encourages compliance. Um, I'm trying to think of the kind of industries that would be likely to have fair pay agreement or that have had discussions around fair pay agreements already that are heavy migrant employers. The bus industry is one, um, not necessarily people who are on work visas, but they employ a lot of relatively recent people who have migrated mm -hmm. to the country, like a lot of Sikh drivers, actually. Um, possibly in maybe the tourism kind of hospitality industries. Actually, back up. Yeah, yeah. Presuming people start drinking coffee in the outside world again. I'm not sure if the health industries are really pushing for fair pay agreements in the same kind of way as the private sector. It will be but it's definitely somewhere where that can happen, right? Uh, and yeah. we do have a lot of migrant healthcare workers um, as well. Yeah, absolutely. Extremely hardworking. Lots of Filipinos as well, um, because they have lots of like education that's oriented towards training young women to be health workers and then sent to relatively rich countries. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a whole business model. Um, and, and I guess it's something that um, via the privatization and neoliberalism, uh, neoliberalization of our healthcare model uh, over the last 40 years, uh, New Zealand has benefited from um, and exploited. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Benefited from and exploited. Um, and they become the same thing at certain points as well. So ideally, this brings us into line with a, a range of other, you know, high functioning OECD countries. Um, we get some better conditions for, for a range of workers across different industries. Why, I mean, taking your union hat off um, to force balance, um, why should employers, well, why, why are employers apparently so terrified of this? We, we saw this just the other week, like when the minimum wage was increased. Was it this week? It was the 1st of April. Is that this week? No, it was the end of last end week. End of last week. Or over the weekend, maybe. Um, yeah, end of last week. The response always comes out, right? It's the same response. But um, you can't lift wages before you boost productivity. That's always the response that comes from the right. And the same responses have been coming from the business community and employers about um, fair pay agreements. We can't just pay people more, they need to be more productive and then we can make more revenue and then we'll have more money to pay them more. And why are those trucks leaving from the back of the building with those huge sacks of money? You're not supposed to see those. That's, you're not supposed to be looking at that. Can you please give me that videotape? But the, it, it always happens, but it's just not true. And that's the kind of big problem. Like if you, I've got a graph in front of me right now that got, runs from 1989 to 2021. Um, and we can see that productivity rose twice as fast as wages over that period. I but wait, if, it, why, if, if productivity is raising, why aren't wages rising alongside that? <clears throat> well, because workers don't have bargaining power to be able to have their wages increase at the same rate of productivity. Productivity isn't just a made up thing. Like it, it's an economic calculation based on economic output divided by the number of hours. Like it's like how much money businesses shit out divided by the number of hours that workers have to work to generate them, right? 
that means that the, the number of hours is increasing at a lower rate than the amount of money coming in from it. So there's more money coming in, but workers don't have the bargaining power to claim it because we don't have industry bargaining. And we ha we've had throughout a lot of that period, we had extremely weak enterprise bargaining as well during the Employment Contracts Act. So that money went into the back pockets of bosses. And it's like, it's particularly stuck because that what I sh told you right then was the economy-wide situation. But if you look at some of, we talked about essential workers earlier in the discussion. If you look at the, the retail industry, right? Um, their productivity rose somewhere between three to four times as fast as wages did over that period, right? So like, that means that money coming into the industry or profits being generated by the industry rose much, much faster than wages did, almost four times as fast. And if the, if the average wage had grown at the same amount, then the average rate wage in the retail industry today would be $45.21 per hour. That's incredible. And, yeah, and if you so, times that by a working people's, like by over a year period of working 40-hour weeks, a, a retail worker would have $38,631 more in their pockets if their wages had risen at the same rate as the productivity. But instead you see this consolidation account. of paid employment in, in the CEO and management who, who are part of the, the process of driving wages down um, and profits just rising to, to enormous degrees, just like we've seen over the pandemic. It's, I mean, there must be a massive shortage of um, CEOs in this country because the rates at which CEOs have had to be paid has just skyrocketed. We, there's been no other way to explain this labor market phenomenon, except we just don't produce good quality CEOs in this country. So we've really had to hike up. I feel packets. like you're, this is tongue in cheek. Yeah, this is totally tongue in cheek. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what a good CEO looks like. I just don't understand those qualities. But it's true that there has been a massive transfer of wealth over that sort of past 30 year period, which is why, as I was saying earlier, you know, we would really encourage workers in the current situation to try and take advantage of three factors, right? Um, you have extremely low unemployment, the lowest that we've had in 30 years. If you, 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 that can be leveraged to turn into other, to higher wages. And in fact, your boss is probably trying to do that right now to make sure you keep working for him and not for his competitor or her competitor. The second factor is that the cost of living is extremely high. So if you don't do this, then you're going to lose, right? You're already losing by doing nothing. So joining a union, taking action, making sure that uh, when your union representative goes into bargaining that they put forward a 12% claim rather than a 3% claim or something like that, you know, be, be bold, be brave, we can do it, now's the time because they need our labour. Um, that is actually going to make sure that your kids can put shoes on, you know, the, make sure that you can pay the meridian that bill that comes in every month that you always forget about. And then the third factor, uh, so you have First of all, tight labor market. Second of all, you have to do it. The cost of living are too high. People have to join the union. Third factor is that, as we mentioned before, corporate tax take for 2021 was the highest ever. There's more money in big corporations than there's ever been before in profits over the last year. If workers don't take that money back, then that's a straight theft. I wouldn't like to legitimize that. I think it's important that workers don't legitimize that theft because that's wealth that they've generated on behalf of their bosses. So it's time to transfer that money back. And if we don't do this, then you know the, the Labour government's capacity to be 
a transformative government will be confined to small, not small things, but will be confined to things like fair pay agreements, right? I, I'm not giving any inches or miles to the current parliamentary Labour Party, but they can't be as brave as you want them to be without workers taking serious action right now to making and making sure that there's a case for the kind of things that we're talking about in terms of, strengthen of strengthening of workers' rights, decent, free public service, universal public services for all working people, and some constraints around what, what businesses can do in terms of setting the planet on fire. And, and we've seen, you know, that action being taken overseas, uh, specifically in the United States, um, as, as a major um, kind of place where that's been happening. Uh, even places like Amazon are starting to see unions pop up because that power is being leveraged. Uh, I think if, you know, the, the workers of Amazon distribution centers are able to push back against, you know, I like one of the biggest, most powerful companies in the world um, and establish some worker power, uh, that puts us all in like a, a pretty good spot to be doing the same. Yeah, um, in my previous role, I worked in Kuala Lumpur and I worked with labor unions right around the East, um, Southeast Asia, South Asia and East Asia region. And I know that if, you know, 90% of the unions that I worked with there had the same kind of capacity to organize that workers in New Zealand had, that um, you bet there would be like some serious settlements going down right now in terms of increasing workers wages and that kind of thing because um while we could have a better legal framework for doing things we at least have our rights to be able to form unions to be able to protest to be able to hold strikes and this kind of thing um that's there's a reason why countries in the global south crush unions um and that's because they want all the manufacturing con <laughs> the manufacturing business that we no longer have in this country like the the, the fact is that the cost of labor is kept artificially low in in these countries um and if we have an opportunity to try and improve that for workers in new zealand then i think it would be like hugely disrespectful to people that make all the stuff that our life relies on in the global south to not exercise that to ensure that those workers know that they they could do the same thing and, and feel emboldened to do that by, you know, you said it's happening in the United States and I absolutely agree. It's happening in New Zealand as well. Workers at CHEP, the country, mm -hmm. the company that makes um, most of the pellets in this country, wooden pellets that move stuff around the country, took a 15 day strike action. They did everything to stop the strike, man. They brought I, well, them... that didn't have much media coverage here. This is one of the ones I was talking about. I saw a no. couple of stories on it not a huge amount of media coverage and it was frustrating but this is a bunch of Samoan workers on um close to the minimum wage the boss brought in like a minister he brought in Samoan community leaders to try and tell them you mean like a go, church minister yeah to try and tell them to go home and not not ask for a better deal anymore the um the police came and tried to break up the, the site by giving uh, an expired like um police uh a trespass notice that had been issued last year for the Parnell rose gardens or some shit like absolutely. that's not legal no it's not legal and it was pushed back on and the trespass notice has been was lifted but these workers held the line and they managed to all win living wage increases Incredible. they all got union bonuses they all got paid back for the time that they had to take strike action and it shows that you can't necessarily do that all the time but you can do it right now and that i think is a real line in the sand uh, works at Briscoe's the other day, got 7% increase. Big retail firm, offshore owned, you know, then Briscoe's knows they have to compete for the cost of labor now. 
because it's a hot labor market. This is the time. Remember, the <laughs> Reserve Bank has already said that this is a temporary state of affairs. They said it's maximum sustainable employment. They've lifted um, interest rates as a result of that. So it's more expensive for businesses to buy to get capital so that they can't employ as many people anymore. They want to make sure that this leverage doesn't exist for long. So workers like really have to fucking jump on this, you know? Now's the time. Well, that brings us to um, the second thing uh, that we wanted to quickly talk about, uh, which is the new campaign that First Union has in the works. Yeah, so the economy's broken. Um, it's not delivering benefits for working people, but through collect collective action, we can fix it. The campaign's called The Big Fix, and it's not about wages being fixed by fair pay agreements. It's about we have a broken economy that workers can fix, and the only way to fix it is to take collective action for themselves. So we're encouraging workers at all across the country to be really ambitious with their claims and collective bargaining and to bring a little bit of, of excitement back because we've been getting throughout the country wage settlements in the sort of CHIP was 6.15%, 6 so higher than the rate of inflation. We've been getting higher than the rate of inflation in almost every bargaining we're doing at the moment by putting ambitious claims on the floor, 7%, 8%. I got a ferry driver agreement at the very end of last year where we got wage increases of up to 26% for some workers. They are also getting uh, redundancy benefits that they didn't have before by going hard and, and taking threatening strike action at this time. There's nothing an employer can do when you have a hot labor market and you're current workers threatening to walk out the yep. door. You can't get scabs and if there's no scabs. You can't get scabs and if there's no scabs, particularly if half the country is isolating due to Omicron, uh, which is the situation right now. I mean, it was never quite at half the country, but, you know, large numbers of people having to isolate. The, the labour market is going to remain tight uh, for probably the next six months. That's going to start translating to wage pressure anyway, but um, we really need to make sure workers have the ability to, to turn back the, the 30 years of, of uh, neoliberalism and the 30 years of wage repression that have taken place in this country. I was talking to you before about uh, some of the industries that have really like where tr productivity has skyrocketed. Transport is, is one in Aotearoa and that's another industry where, again, it's an essential service industry, right? It's one that's got us through the pandemic. But over the past 30 years, the productivity in the industry has grown three times as fast as wages. If a worker had been <laughs> experienced productivity increases at that rate, they would have made $36,000 more last year than they, than they did make. It's so, one of these really uh, frustrating things, right, in that... For years and years and years and years, and, and still to this day, employers and, and politicians in the media talk about uh, technology making us more productive um, and it's gonna, you're all going to lose your jobs because of technology. I mean, it's definitely made us more productive, but it's because of the workers who are utilizing that technology and that kind of gets swept under the carpet. Yeah, I mean, that's that's absolutely right. Technology has made us more productive, but it's it's made us better at using labor power more effectively. And that's one of the good things about pricing the cost of labor higher. You know, I, there's a lot of concerns around automation taking jobs and all that kind of thing. Automation, Hasn't happened yet. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it does. And then new jobs are created in different parts of the economy and all that kind of thing. But automation also improves workers' lives significantly, right? Like you, you look at the way the forestry industry worked 
60 years ago to how forestry looks today. Like the, it, it's a totally different looking industry. The, a lot of the risk is taken out of the industry. There are still heaps of risks in the industry and it's still a very dangerous industry, but um, it's also a much more productive industry. The number of labor hours to produce the amount of timber that comes out of the industry is massive. But again, it's an industry that has competitive tendering where the cost of labor has been dragged downwards by the fact that different contractors compete against each other and the way they win a contract is by reducing labor costs little bit by little bit. And again, you know, these high risk industries, when you reduce labor costs, you put people in a situation of more likely to be fatigued, more likely to cut corners, more likely to do stupid things. And in dangerous industries like forestry, that's literally life or death issue. Forestry has killed, I mean, I looked at the data the other day the WorkSafe data over the past decade, forestry has killed more workers than any other industry. It's all—it's an industry of like five thousand people. Um, they would experience every decade one percent of that workforce dies. Fifty people, fifty-three people died in the last decade in, in the forestry industry out of a workforce of five thousand. Um, and it's also one of the most profitable industries in the country. If you compare it to the um, the revenue to profit ratio for most years out of the past decade has been higher than the banking industry. So like your return on, on business that you do is if you're gonna invest in one of the industry based on that measure, it looks like the forestry industry is a safer bet than the banking industry because the cost of labor is so low. Yeah. Because workers don't get the benefit of what they produce. That's why workers are the, are the only ones that can, can do it. And the, the time that you can do it is when you have a tight labor market, when you have low unemployment um, and we have low unemployment, we have high inflation, we have a tight labor market, we have workers desperate for more money in their pockets, and we have businesses with the money to do that. This is the time for workers to be extremely demanding, extremely ambitious in terms of what they can achieve across the bargaining table. And a, a labor government that is maybe starting to put some tools in place that can be pulled, right? They, like le- levers that can be used by workers uh, to get some of these conditions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if, if we can't do it within the context of having industry bargaining, then, you know, and industry bargaining will benefit from more ambitious labor unions. Industry bargaining, I think, will suffer greatly from bureaucratization. We need to make sure, if we want to create the kind of workers' paradise where you can actually, <laughs> you can earn enough money to pay your landlord's rent, then all, all we need to do is make sure that alongside industry bargaining, that unions don't lose the fact that they're here to represent working people rather than, than be groups that can work closely with, with business according to the rules of business. We have to make sure that workers are representing workers on the grounds of workers and, and with the intention of uplifting workers. So if people want to find uh, out more about the big fix uh, that First Union is uh, starting to campaign on, where can they do that? Oh, there's not not really any online content right now. I'm sorry, but um, no, <laughs> <laughs> we we will be consistently um, securing big fix outcomes over the next couple of months as the labor market remains tight. Um, I think the best place to look actually will be through First Union's TikTok account. That's where. Man, it's sick. Yeah. What's the um? Yeah. What's the app for the TikTok account? Oh, I guess it's at First Union NZ. I'm not sure. I'll check out in the summary. <laughs> yeah please do nice well i think we did it right 
Yeah, I think we've done it. Um, any final things uh, that you want to say uh, to our audience? Yeah, there's two things. One, try and find out about the submission process for fair pay agreements. To do a submission, it can just be three words saying, I support fair, way, fair pay agreements because they'll increase workers' wages. That three words, I counted them. Don't look at me like that, Kyle. The other thing that you can do is join your union. And if you're already a member of a union, then you should try and join the executive or the bargaining team. And you should jump in the next round of collective bargaining and be like, no, we should do a 10% increase. Make it 15. We should do a 100% increase. We should do a 300% increase. Just really highball them. <laughs> like, just bring something to the table that they struggle to bring down. Yeah, and then immediately go on strike straight after saying it. No, uh, just be ambitious. Look, you know that you're worth more than what your boss is valuing your labor. You know you're worth more than the labor that your landlord steals from you through your rent payment, but you have to balance those things. Be ambitious. Make a big claim. Join hey, you. thanks so much for joining us uh, today, Ed. Yeah, hard. Thank you for having me. Let the economy's broken, but through our collective action, work is complexed. Fantastic. That's uh, been another episode of One of 200 uh, with Ed Miller from First Union talking about fair pay agreements uh, and some of the different things happening in the union and workspace in New Zealand. If you've enjoyed this, share it around. I think it's really important that more people are aware of what's happening in the space and some of the things going on in our workplaces. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily being covered as well as it should have, especially in terms of the direct impact it's going to have on large numbers uh, in the New Zealand workforce. Find us on our website at one of 200nz We're on Acast. You can support us uh, on the Acast Plus uh, option um, under subscriptions. So chuck us a few dollars uh, if you want to support more independent media in New Zealand. Thanks so much for listening to another episode. We'll catch you next time. Relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is the lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines Dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism